0: Well, good evening, thanks for, for coming. Um, I'm Ruben Jackson, as, as, uh, as you know, I'm the archivist at the American History Museum. And this is actually the second face-to-face I've had the pleasure of doing here. Last year, I talked about another musician whose work means a great deal to me, Thelonious Monk. And today, uh, we're gonna talk about this particular gentleman, uh, born in Fort Worth, Texas, March 1930, the great saxophonist, uh, violinist, Trumpeter, composer, Ornette Coleman. So, what I'm gonna do in the next few minutes is give you a bit of, not so much a factual blow by blow. I mean, I've, I've interspersed, I'll intersperse some things, like he was born in Fort Worth in March 1930. I'll mention some of the artists he's had uh, the pleasure of working with and vice versa, including uh, the Grateful Dead, we see here. But I wanted to read some statements uh, attributed to Ornette Coleman, statements I've read in the past and have stayed with me because I think they, they offer a, a very telling insight into his way of thinking and, and at least in part his, his art, which is varied and controversial and lyrical and those sorts of things. So uh, the first thing that came to mind, and I have this, as they say in Washington, I'm going to read from a semi-prepared statement. These are, from, these are two quotes from uh, the liner notes Ornette did for. Um, well, there were albums then, in 1978, a, a record called uh, "Body Meta." And uh, the first statement was as follows: "What you should never know is to never find out why you shouldn't." Now, you know, shutting aside the, the syntax and the grammar, and I'll read it again, what you should never know is to never find out why you shouldn't." Now, you can interpret this many ways, but I, you know, I've thought about it in terms of uh, of the curiosity needed for, in this case, artistic uh, exploration. And, you know, I thought specifically about my childhood when I first read this, though, honestly, when I first read it, I kind of went, what, what, what? You know, I turned the paper this way, turned it this way, turned it this way. But, um, you know, think about the things say your parents told you, you know, you shouldn't know anything about that. Well, I think what he is saying is, you know, if you stop there, you'll never find out why you shouldn't know these things. Now, what the heck does this have to do with Ornette Coleman? Um, you know, here's someone who is affiliated with the, quote, jazz uh, label, shackle, however you want to put it. But, you know, he's also someone who has written for symphony orchestras, uh, you know, ballets, these sorts of things. Now if one is limited, if one limits oneself to whatever the word jazz means, and I, I'll throw in another Ornette quote, which I've found has often uh, offended and intimidated some, some colleagues, which is why I've used it on occasion. Uh, and this is from 1976, and he says, everyone knows that titles like rock, jazz, and blues are yesterday's titles. Well, what does that mean if you're considered a quote, jazz musician? And what does that mean to you know this, this gentleman then given the beard uh, this is probably late 60s early 70s but i, I think i don't think it's a, a repudiation of those traditions i think it means and i, I asked myself this question you know, i work with quote jazz collections at american history but what does the word jazz mean in 2009 i mean i have no idea and i you know how it is in washington people say well you're an expert what does what does what i don't know i don't know what that means and i i say this to people and they think Hmm, you know, how'd you get this job? But, um, and again, I'm, I'm supposing in a way for someone who, is, who could be here and explain this much better than I, but, um, but what do these titles tell us about the music? I think that's, that's a question. And if I tell you that Ornette Coleman is a quote, jazz musician, and you've never heard his music, and actually how many of you are familiar with Ornette's music? One, very two, very little, okay, but four people. Um, for people who aren't and I have said this and I, I say oh you know what kind of music does he play and they kind of keep harping on it and you guys you have to tell them something you say jazz and I go oh well I have something to do but does that tell you what the music sounds like and that's that's the question I think that's one of the frustrations that people like Ornette and Duke Ellington and other people have with this word you know what does it mean um I mean when Ornette talks about his composing he says that um you know, all solos are given equal weight. All musicians are free to make deep individual contributions while listening closely to one another at once giving and taking space for their respective creativity. Uh, it, this music, his music is seen by many people as kind of a, a metaphor for what maybe democracy could be or is in theory. And so, uh, so what does that mean? I mean, I think it's another question that uh, comes to mind because you've got jazz and then if, if, there are equal, if there's equal weight given to a musician, you know, is there a leader? I, I think, and this might make more sense if you were listening to the music, but uh, you, know, you think about some of the people he's worked with, guitarist Pat Metheny, um, some of the classic acoustic groups with trumpeter Don Cherry, the late saxophonist Dewey Redmond. It's like there's a uh, kind of an encouraging restlessness and you think you know it, but you don't know. It's like the music keeps going forward. And I think of something that Duke Ellington said, someone said, well, what's your favorite composition? And he said, the next one. So um, the other thing about this gentleman, I I think it's interesting. uh, And I would argue that there is a, there's kind of a pecking order of acceptable jazz musicians. Now keep that in, you know, that's kind of an ironic statement since we aren't talking about, you don't even see jazz people on the American Music Awards. If you look at the Grammys, they kind of, Rusty the awards you know during the commercial break you know very quickly who won blah 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 and, and the names kind of roll by and if you went to get a chicken McNugget, it's done but you know with that um, there is still ornette is one of these people who probably best personifies what the critic Whitney Balliot called jazz the sound of surprise and yet you know you have people like ornette people like thelonious monk who even now uh, are a bit too esoteric for people who consider themselves jazz fans. So what happens when you're you know, a music which, which claims, at least in part, um, one of its hallmarks is to embrace the individual um, contribution to the tradition. But what if you don't fit into that? I mean, what happens? What if you're a, uh, say you consider that non-like non-con- nonconformist behavior, but what if you don't even make it into there? So you listen to the little jazz we have on the radio here, Ornette's not somebody you hear on a, on a regular basis. Um, he works more like so many musicians uh, in Europe than in the United States. But uh, it's fascinating. He, he remains very optimistic. If, I think that his, his interviews are as lyrical and as uh, thought-provoking as the music themselves. In fact, I would not draw any uh, distinction between them. A couple of years ago, I had the pleasure of uh, hearing him he was interviewed by the saxophonist greg osby at the now defunct uh, association uh international association for jazz education in new york and there were so many enthralled people in this audience and there were so many angry people and i thought about uh, the first recordings that came out in the late 50s when people like um cannonball Adderley said oh this guy's a fraud you know what is what's going on here this music is this isn't what the music's supposed to sound like and of course is is often the case with whether it's a poet or a sculptor. You go back, you, know, you look at something that happened 50 years ago, and it, it turns out to be more in line with, quote, the tradition than may have been originally thought. It might have taken it in a slightly different direction. And of course, you know, what is, you think of one of the hallmarks of create, creativity, and you know, the poet Ezra Pound always said, to make it new. And I think, you know, Ornette is someone who is drawn on the kind of gut bucket blues tradition, of. Uh, the sky's the limit. So in a way he says, well, you know, these are yesterday's titles, but in a sense to embrace those things is to, to say, well, I can put carrots in the soup, but I don't have to call myself you know, a cook. It's just in there. So, um, But anyway, he, so he, he was talking and I think there were people who wanted to hear him talk specifically about music. You know, in 1957, so I put the first A minor seven chord in one of his classic uh, compositions, Lonely Woman, but he talked about his mother and how his mother understood who he was. And it was, I thought it was very moving. It was this wonderful solo on the person who creates this music. And uh, I think that's a very important thing. It's a very rare thing. Uh, Ornette wrote a piece called Beauty is a Rare Thing. And I think that someone who is willing to, to make these sorts of risks to uh, speak as honestly and as heartfelt as he has done and continues to do about his work and about his life, uh, you know, that's a way of reaching out to us as individuals. And it, it's, my, my deep love for this music notwithstanding, I've never quite figured out why people such as Ornette, and if you listen to, I mean, I could just name, a, you know, five or six pieces off the top of my head. I mentioned Lonely Woman. The record he did with Pat Matheny's Song X is a piece called um, Job Mob. It's kind of a four-four know, swing kind of piece. And, it's so accessible. It's it's like bursting with melody, and I, you know, you think of some of the, the things that people say about jazz, uh, like this book that former Smithsonian curator Martin Williams wrote called "Where's the Melody?" People say "Where's the Melody?" But it's almost, it's like when the ice breaks on a, a, you know, a dam or something in the spring, and the water just flushes out. There is so much melody. There's so much kind of humor and poignance in his saxophone playing and in his writing, that it's. I think it's extremely accessible and I've never, I think it would work on the radio, you know, radio of course being what it is today, but um, what I, but nonetheless, I think um, when I think about his work, what he means as a human being, because I, I think that is first and foremost with him, you know, who he is as a person. Uh, well, like any of the great people in these halls, because who you are in part will inform the art and, um, I was on the way up here to today and I thought about a quote from the saxophonist Lester Young. Well, supposedly what happened was this. Poet Allen Ginsberg said to Lester Young, what would you do if, if, uh, if they dropped the atom bomb on New York City? And Lester Young said, well, I'd go into Tiffany's and buy some jewels anyway. And I think, you know, without being mawkish about this, I think about the indifference, the critical indifference that not only Ornette, but so many musicians of this ilk have to endure, and I'm not saying that to play the violin, but it, it um it's kind of this quiet but very loud indifference. But I think he you know he's someone who goes into Tiffany's and gets the jewels anyway. And and uh, with if you have not heard the music, I would urge you you know don't wait until you see some long obituary in the Times or the Post because it's it's closer. This music is closer to what. Well, I mean, it, it it pulls from music around the world, but it's possibly closer to the American grain, as a poet William Carlos Williams said, than we might think. And it is, you know, one of the great ironies that, uh, as a friend of mine who's a musician said, well, you know, you have to go to Helsinki to uh, to to get a book about some musician who was born in Detroit. And I, I do think that is one of the, uh, it's something I've had to get my mind around in 20-something years of working with this music, and that if you want to. You know, I talked to someone in Paris about Bill Evans, and they said, oh yeah, you know, I did this film, and they went to New Jersey, and people in New Jersey don't know. So all of this goes into the art, all of this goes into the society in which uh, musicians like Ornette Coleman operate, and yet they go into to, uh, Tiffany's and get the jewels anyway and give them to us. So that's, uh, that's kind of my meditation on this. I mean, that's the way I feel about the art, I, I, uh, I know it's more, well, yeah, it's more of my, my ruminations than a Joe Friday just the facts thing. But if you have questions or comments, uh, I'll, I'll gladly entertain them or try to entertain them. I would like to make a comment. Yes, ma'am. I had the great pleasure of meeting for NET last year for the
1: first time in Germany. at um, the glass of milk or it was actually a mug with milk. Mm -hmm. And he no, it was orange juice. And he looked across the table and I was sitting a bit on the other side and said, is that red wine? And I said, yes, I would like to have some red wine. And so I gave him the bottle and he and a glass. Mm -hmm. And he said, no, I don't want a glass, I just want the wine. He starts pouring the wine in the mug with the orange juice and there was still juice in there. And I looked at him, and I thought it was the strangest thing I'd ever seen. Mm. And he said, a couple of minutes later, is that milk? I would like the milk. So he put the milk into that concoction, and then it turned sort of purplish. And he sensed the bewilderment on my face. Mm-hmm. And he took my hand, and he's just the kindest, sweetest yeah. person in the world. And he's completely sane. He says, it's the idea. It's all about the idea. Mm. So his cousin Mm -hmm. and the cousin's wife sat there at the table. And so the next day I saw them and I said, it just blew me away. I want to try to drink that. And the cousin said, don't, don't even think about it. That's just what Mm -hmm. And I would never forget
0: that. That's wonderful. I mean, I think that's that's a great way to describe the music too. And I think that this kind of daring, even if I was thinking about some of the recordings, he did in the late 70s when he started working with a primarily electric group called Primetime. And uh, there's a piece called Voice Poetry, which has what a lot of people would call the, they call it the Bo Diddley beat, that boom, this. And so you've got this rhythm and so, you know, one guitar is in one key, uh, Burn Nixon, the other guitar is Charlie Ellerby's in another one, the bass player comes in, but it's like the milk, the orange juice, the wine, but it, it's, it's this real in-the-pocket piece, but it's kind of well, I guess it, it's kind of a reflection of what he said, trying to get the individual contribution. And it is the kind of thing that throws that can throw people because it is not you might think the music's going this way and it might go this way and maybe this way and this way and this way, but it's not I don't think it's a, a facile attempt to be, quote, you know, far out or something. It's how he is. And and I think that a lot of it Requires thinking, well, using using this this anecdote as is kind of a, a springboard for a uh, for what you hear, but uh, but again, it's never. Uh, what was it the poet Wallace Stevens would say if 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 a poem didn't work for him, he'd say, "Man's fever is not present here." But I think that the fever and the passion is always there, and it, it's not just uh, doing something for the sake of doing it, and and. Uh, I used to use a lot of his recordings with middle school children doing poetry. There's a record he did called Science Fiction and I'd, I'd play them and I'd say well you know just construct a construct a story out of this and you get the most incredible, they're incredible vehicles for that sort of thing because well again going back to to your your story you, you, they would take them and create poems in which these interesting sorts of uh, occurrences would would take place and I I think the music is a story it's a journey and that's the other thing to remember I think it's more important to think about uh, the song than whether it is you know and I I'm guilty of this because of my job you know is is it rock you know is there like a flatted ninth in the fifth measure and and it is it's okay to just to just kind of feel it and I think it's impossible not to to feel something again whether you're outraged or bewildered you're going to to feel something but i think it i think this music can really make you rethink what is possible within art or within creativity and that's i mean i think that's true for ornette you can look around this room carlos santana the grateful dead actually any of these people grace kelly you know marlon brando but it it's it's the changing scene, you know what what can you do? And and of course, you know, getting off the Brando was a big Miles Davis fan, for example, and uh, he once joked to Miles and said, "Oh, I use your voice for Don Corleone." But see how these things bleed into each other. I mean, that's my point. And and uh, you know, Ornette got beaten up on the bandstand. You think about playing. You people would hear him play, and he got beat up in Texas somewhere because they said, "You know, you can't do this." So I. I was thinking about that and I thought, what if you know, if James Joyce had been a saxophone player and had gotten up and blown Finnegan's wake, somebody probably would have tried to beat him up. What, what the heck are you doing? You know, Jackie Collins might have beat I don't know. Anyway. Um, <laughs> uh, any other questions? What were, as far as his
1: training, was he classically trained or, or, or influenced his school? Or-
0: good, good question. He played in um, a lot of R&B bands in, in Fort Worth. And, and the other thing I think it's important to point out is in coming from that area, I don't know if you're familiar with this, you know, the, the, the Texas, even though he's a, primarily an alto saxophonist, but this great temp, uh, Texas saxophone tradition. I mean, Dewey Redmond, who was in the band at one point, another tenor saxophone player named James Clay, uh, Bud Johnson. It's this deep, uh, Booker Irvin, who played with Charles Mingus, this deep, mellifluous sound. And, uh, so he is a part of that as well and, and that meshing of musics that you get in Texas, which of course was Mexico before the, uh, before the war, so that, you talk about fusion, you know, that, that fusion was always there. But um, he basically taught himself how to, how to orchestrate, um, contrary to what's often uh, assumed about Ornette he said, "Well, yeah, I used to play Charlie Parker solos. You know, he learned Charlie Parker solos from a book. He said I could play that stuff, but it wasn't it wasn't who he was. And I, I think, as you know, whether it's Jackson Pollock or or Ornette or uh, fill in the blank, if it if there is some radical departure from the norm, you know, if the if the vase looks like a smear, someone might think, well, they're faking. And that is that is not the case with him." Now, he has an unusual way of orchestrating and, and he's work, he's working on this piece called In All Languages, which I don't think he's finished. It's another orchestral piece and you know, you'll see it's a score but it has these octaves and he, he tells the players, well, okay, you can play between, you know, middle C and, and high C. I said, Well just play, um, think about what you know, your your childhood and how you felt after you were born and, and uh, play that between these octaves. so that I mean, that's not something you get at Juilliard. Maybe you should. So it's, it's a, it is a, I guess one might say kind of idiosyncratic way of writing, but then even people who are more accepted, like Duke Ellington, really focused on a personalized writing and looking at the, the, um, the characteristics of the musicians. But uh, I think it would be wonderful if someone, and daunting if someone handed me a piece of music and said, Think about your 15th year of life and, what boy, I mean, how would I play pimples? I don't know. But, but um, so it's um, primarily self-taught. Anyone else?
1: Critical acclaim or financial reward.
0: Hmm. <laughs> is, uh, Thanks for coming. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, let's see. Obviously, he is yes. actually well, you know. Actually, this—that's an interesting question because he was once managed by Sid Bernstein, who was the gentleman who got the Beatles in Shea Stadium. Um, and he said the truth was that now we're not talking uh, like Christina Aguilera money here necessarily. But he said the, the irony was that Ornette made a lot of money uh, by comparison, but he gave a lot of it away. Now, I think he he got a MacArthur. Grant at one uh, of, and wasn't, isn't he an NEA jazz? Yeah, yeah. He's a, he's a, a, genius. Genius Grant. Is it Pulitzer? Is it Pulitzer? The Pulitzer, that's right, that's right, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's in the last few years you, you started, and I mean, there have always been people who have championed his, his work, but it's, uh, but again, I, it's, I've always thought that he was kind of, well, it's coming, it, it's, it's starting to come, and I guess that's the most important thing. I mean, jazz at Lincoln Center, did some uh, pieces a few years ago, and and um, I don't know. You know, Thelonious Monk said, "Just play your own way, even if it takes the public a while to catch up." And maybe that's the case here. Uh, I, I mean, I think there are such riches in in his compositions, and and I wish more musicians would would delve into them. I, I think it there's it's hard for some people to get beyond what's acceptable, and that's I mean that's an individual thing, and, and I guess that's I mean, maybe that's one of the hallmarks of, of this music, and it's kind of a trick bag too. Because if you uh, if you say to yourself, "Well, quote jazz is this, 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 and this," and then you look at the menu, and maybe this is not on the menu, what do you do? And and as another a musician friend of mine said, "Don't forget, this is show. You know, it's it's the music business." He said, "You know, you work in a museum. You're not trying to do this every day." And that's that's another part of the equation, I think, so. But,
1: um. In the, Was there a particular artist statement that was coming out of an area when the time
0: this portrait was done? Well, you know, let's see if there's a. The artist is a guy who makes a career out of doing jazz and blues musicians and,
1: musician. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, actually knew Cornet pretty well. They were both part of the downtown New York scene. Ah,
0: York so, thank you. Yeah, I thought that was 70.
1: See, kind of Mhm
0: mhm 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 Sure. That, you know, you get a
1: sense of the boldness of the guy's yeah.
0: uh, personality and the softness too. I mean, I think it's that vulnerability is there and you, you know, that's, so it's it's certainly both. Uh, now, to answer your question, if it's, if we're talking 70s, uh, his Symphony Skies of America came out in 71 and he was living it's 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 interesting you think about the and this is I guess where my my archivist head comes in but the where New York was economically in the early 70s it was kind of really on its on its keister as Archie Bunker would say and yet you know Ornette had a loft on on Prince Street and you know an area now which is big big bucks and you know, he's working with the bassist Charlie Hayden and, and Dewey Redman and those people. It was it was a really an extremely creative period for him. He did some well. He was with Columbia Records for a bit, so he did "Skies of America," "Science Fiction." Uh, he'd also been with Flying Dutchman Records, so "Friends and Neighbors." and There's a gentleman who lives in the D.C. area. back in the D.C. area named Byron Morris, but he was he was up on Prince Street as well, and that's I guess that's in Soho, and and. Uh, but a lot was going on in New York musically in the early 70s, in part because it was so, it was affordable to live in places like, I mean, Soho and the Lower East Side, and nobody wanted to t- touch that. So, you know, you look five and six years later when punk bands like the Ramones are kicking up. And well, part of the reason was that they could move in and nobody wanted to, you know, nobody was gonna be found on Avenue A or any place like that. But and you know, so now what you know it becomes popular, and then these people have to disappear. But, um, but this is also a time in which he was being reviewed in magazines like Rolling Stone. So you you start to get this. There are some quote jazz musicians who were able to who were followed by the counterculture. What was in kind of the tail end of the counterculture, I suppose. Um, Ornette, well Albert Eiler, saxophonist, before he died, he died in nineteen seventy. Uh, miles, of course, the Electric Miles stuff. So it, that's, that's another, um, kind of another nexus that's, that's of interest. And you know, I mentioned the Grateful Dead earlier, but uh, Ornette did a record and did some, not with the entire band, but did some recording with, with Jerry Garcia. And because you think about the Dead, people often say, oh, you work with the Ellington stuff. Who's the first improvising band you heard? And I said, well, there were two. It was the uh, Jimi Hendrix Experience and the Grateful Dead. And you know these were musicians who were aware of people like Ornette and Charles Mingus and Cecil Taylor, and, and were able to, you know, like Duke Ellington said, they were people with ears. And so there, it doesn't surprise me because uh, I mean Jerry Garcia really knew a lot, you know, and was not afraid to do something like sit in with with Ornette, um, as did uh, you know saxophonist David Murray did work with with Jerry Garcia. There's. People who just aren't afraid to walk across the street and next door with somebody and say, you know, I'll put, well, I'll put some milk in with the wine, I guess. Maybe that'd be a good name for ornate Coleman book. Put some, anyway. Um, any other? All right. Thank okay, thank you all.